Good morning. Today's reading is from Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. Romans 3, 1 through 20. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the prophet of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them are committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Would their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words, and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust, who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. <clears throat> For then, how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil, that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They all have turned aside, they have come together and become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb, but their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. The feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before us. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for uh, this day that you've given to us. I thank you. Uh, that we are able as a congregation to still gather and know the, uh, all the craziness that has been going on, especially this week. Um, I just thank you for this time that we have to uh, be able to come together. I pray for Jamie as he comes. I pray that uh, you would give him wisdom and understanding and help him to be able to communicate what you want for us this morning. In your son's name, amen. Exercise. I can't believe you're going to hear a senior this year. It blows me away. When I first came, you're a little guy over there in the classroom. And now you're, uh, you are graduating this year, right? Still on track. All right, good. Um, let me grab the uh, remote here. Um, so we probably need an encouraging message today. <laughs> the Lord brought us to Romans chapter 3. You're all sinners. In states where it's not illegal, it's relatively inexpensive to buy and keep a baby lying in a tiger. Generally comparable to the price of a fine pedigree dog. And tiger cubs are cute, and they're fun, except in the space of just a year or two, they become adult tigers weighing several hundred pounds and capable of ripping the shreds or eating their owners. What's more, they're notoriously 
uh, un, untamable, they're, they're fickle beasts, and they, they can be playful one moment and deadly the next, making no distinction between human friends and human enemies. And so, these people who have these grandiose ideas of having a cute little baby tiger, when they realize they're out of their pay grade and these things get bigger, they can't control their now adult tigers. They call a guy named Joe Taft, who's the founder of the Exotic Feline Rescue Center in Indiana. And Joe has a sanctuary for abandoned wild animals. That's the second largest in the nation and provides a, a, a habitat where lions and tigers and such can live out their days peacefully. And although Joe and his team and staff try to avoid letting these big cats reproduce, well, sometimes accidents happen, and cats will be cats. And there's a new cub when it's born on the grounds here. It's hand-raised by humans until it's ready to live in the wild. In 2002, Joe and his team tried to uh, were raising one of these cubs in his, in his own home. It was a boisterous, wild thing, and, and uh, it grew bigger and bigger every day. Still, Joe was fully capable of controlling his little tiger until he had a heart attack one day, and he went on, underwent quintuple bypass surgery. And so, he's living in his home, and so he has a tiger for a roommate, and even a young one can be obviously pretty dangerous for a cardiac patient. And suddenly, Joe's own home became a very real threat to this weakened, recovering man from quintuple bypass surgery. So there's only one thing to do. Joe had a steel fence built around his couch. And Joe Taft spent the bulk of his recovery time caged in his living room, eyeing his things behind bars while this tiger roamed freely throughout the rest of the house, pacing and growling and roaring and keeping Joe a literal prisoner in his own home. Now, spiritually speaking... Which character in the story is you, and which is the tiger? Romans 3 this morning tells us that sin is like a tiger. It prowls around your life like it owns you. It threatens your very existence. And apart from Christ, it does own you. It has dominion over you. It stares at you through that cage that imprisons you. And that cage is something you made yourself here. And you're the man on the couch. I want to remind us here of what Paul's doing in this book. Paul's goal in this letter here is to have the church partner with him in Rome to bring the good news of Christ, the crucified risen king, to Spain. And he wants his church to be a mission church, a great commission church, a missionary church. But they needed humility before God and man for the sake of the gospel. And by the gospel. Because they needed a oneness with God and peace with each other in the church. Or there's some little spats that were unfolding here. So that the gospel multiplied and obedient disciples were made who shine as little Christ till the king returns. And so we saw last time uh, in chapter one, uh, a couple weeks ago in chapter 1, 18 through 32, Paul detailed the whole problem of humanity. How we tend to exchange the truth for a lie. And the result of that is that we are, are, have a depravity um, that, the, uh, that, that blocks us from fellowship and relationship with the Lord. 
And so when he unfolds that and, and talks about many of the sins of the Gentiles, you can imagine the Jewish audience saying, yeah, you guys are messed up. You guys are like the circus freaks. But then in chapter 2, we saw last week here that um, for all those who are saying, yeah, you go, Paul, you preach it. Tell, tell the world what's wrong with the world. That Paul turns the tables and he says, and you are guilty as well. And one of the problems is that you think you're going to escape God's judgment. You think you're exempt from it. Simply because you lived as God's covenant people of Israel. And you had God's law delivered to you. But the reality is, you haven't repented. You haven't turned to the Lord, and so you are still under the wrath of God. You're despising the kind, the long-suffering, the forbearance, the kindness of God. And you, just like the Gentiles, Romans 1.18, are under God's wrath. And then at the end of the chapter, he said, And don't base your relationship with God on the fact that you're physically circumcised as marks of being the people of God. What God has always wanted to do, and he quotes from Deuteronomy, is have a circumcision of the heart. It's where the inside of you that needs to be made right. And that, um, and that's proved right by even some of the Gentiles who aren't circumcised physically, identifying with Israel, but identifying with the Lord who's had, who's had changed hearts. And that's the route you need to go. And so what happens is Paul then brings everything together in chapter 3. And he says, you are silenced because we are all under sin. And every mouth must be stopped because the word of God simply reveals how far you fall short. So what I'd like to do this morning is bring us into Romans chapter 3 here. And remind you that Paul showing this general uh, Jewish pharisaical understanding that Israel was so guilty of, of their pride. Uh, and he's going to show them uh, that God brings Jew and Gentile together and he does it in two ways. He does it first of all by showing they're on the same level here with their sin. And then when they come to Christ, they're on the same level with God. There's no partiality with God. Equally guilty under God here. And so really what we're going to do is spend the, the, the time this morning looking at the first half of the gospel. The first half of the gospel is the bad news. It's the bad news. It's, a, it's like a black velvet uh, uh, that, that the beauty of the gospel that you'll see next week in Romans chapter 3, 21 through 30 shines more brightly out. And so here we are in Romans chapter 3 and he's going to... Take a broom here and sweep the dirt out of the corners. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, describes the nature of sin in our hearts. And he says, now, if you want to know there's rats in your basement, you don't walk into the basement, you won't walk to the basement door, clear your throat and say loudly, I think we'll go down and see if there's rats in my basement. Jiggle the knob loudly, open the door in a very leisurely way, turn on the light. Clear your throat and walk down the steps loudly and slowly. And then when you get to the bottom, you look around and say, Well, what do you know? I have no rats in my basement. If you want to know you have rats in your basement, you sneak up to the door, you silently open the door, you flick on the switch, you jump to the bottom of the steps, and you look around, and they'll all be scurrying away. And then you'll know if you have rats. And that's what this passage is doing. It's going to ambush 
It's going to surprise. It's going to bring to light here what is wrong with our hearts. And I've tried to phrase the points in Romans chapter 3 in a positive way here to show um, from the scriptures here what God desires to do, what he desires to see. And the first thing I want us to see is that we're to be changed by his revelation, be changed by his revelation. You might notice in um, in Romans 3 uh, that there's kind of an interesting section at the beginning, verses 1 through 8, and then he gets into 9 through 20. And in verses 1 through 8, it's like a question and answer session. It's, it's, it's called a diatribe. But it's a question and answer session between Paul and his imagined reader. And so you can think of it like this. I'm going to summarize 1 through 8 with this question and answer. Paul, are you saying there's no advantage to being Jewish? No, I'm not saying that. There's great value in having and knowing the words of God. Yeah, but Paul, those words have failed, haven't they? Because so many haven't believed the gospel of righteousness revealed in God's Son, Jesus. What's happened to the promises? Verse 3. Well, answer verse 3b and 4. Despite the people's failure to believe, God's promises to save are advancing. Our lack of faith only reveals how committed to his truth that he is. Think about what he's done in order to be faithful to his promises. Verse 5. Paul, if unrighteousness is necessary for God's righteousness to be seen, how is that fair for him then to judge us? Paul, verse 6. Well, on that basis, God wouldn't judge anyone in the world. And we all agree God should judge sin. Well, verse 7 and 8. Well, if sinning makes God look better, that means I should sin more, shouldn't I? So this glory is more clearly seen. Paul, verse 8. Well, I've been accused of thinking this and saying this, and I don't. And saying you're sinning so that God will love you is an attitude absolutely worthy of condemnation, he says in verse 8. And so here's what he's saying here in these verses here. What advantage then? Verse 1. Has the Jew, what's a prophet of circumcision? Why did God do this for Israel? And Paul says a lot. And the biggest one is this. You were given the word of God. You were the nation chosen out of all the nations to receive the word of God. But here's the problem. They have it, but it does not have them. That's the problem. In other words, you lift up the word. Think about the Pharisees. They would, they would even attach little scrolls of the word of God to their foreheads and other places. They think these things called phylacteries and put them on their doorposts uh, here as a, as a sign that they were so committed to God's word. But the reality is they lifted up the word, but they didn't lift up its power to transform them. They reduced it to be just a symbol. Verse 3 then, Paul says... They ask, well, some didn't believe. Will their unbelief make the faith witness of God without effect? And Paul says, no, let God be true and every man a liar. And the point of verse 3 is this, God's faithful when man isn't. But our unrighteousness, it demonstrates the righteousness of God. What will we say? Paul says, well... If you think that God's righteousness makes your sin more conspicuous, here's the problem. You're unbelievers. You're under God's condemnation. 
God's justified in condemning you because you've had all this light from the Old Testament. You knew about God. You had the advantage and you didn't believe. And friends, let me, let's think about this today. Think how many resources on understanding the Word of God we have today. Think about the advantages that we have. I mean, you could buy Bibles in Walmart, right? And if the Jews were condemned because they didn't believe and they didn't put to practice what God had said in His Word despite their advantages, what was God saying to us today, right? If the Jews had an advantage, Israel had an advantage, we certainly have more. And if God condemned their lack of response to His Word, may He have mercy on us. We have the Bible. There's so much about it. I wonder how much Bible intake have you had? It's kind of a first question, but it's not the end question. How much change has come in our hearts through the Word of God? Paul's saying here that you let the Word of God put a spotlight in that God is good and we're sinners, but it's not transforming you. From that point of dependence forward, God's goodness and His perfection show the way forward. It's not just receiving the Word, it's being not just hearers, but doers as well. They, they took a partial truth of God's Word here instead of the whole truth. And ironically, they used the Word of God as an excuse to disobey it. Friends, when God gives us His Word, one of His greatest gifts... He wants what's good for you. The things He tells you in it are for your good for life. He doesn't just want to show you how how far you fall short of, which He does in this passage. He wants us to take that and then build on it and move into righteousness here that comes apart from the law in Christ. But here's the deal with our hearts. This is kind of another one of those paths away from God that's tainted with uh, connecting it to religion. Our heart can take something good that God gives and turn it into bad. It can twist good things that God gives into bad. We can see ourselves as exceptions to God's way. How do I still get what I want out of this and get my own way in other words? The Israelites had missed the point of Scripture to see what God could make them be in Him going forward. Sure, they were called out of the Gentile nations, but they were called to God. And so here's the point. Be changed by his revelation. Don't be like Israel. Here's the problem. I'll say you have the word of God. Correct. And what did you do with it? You're still under sin. Your heart hasn't been changed. Allow his word to rule your heart and life and us together by extension here as a church together. And, and Israel's own oracles of God, uh, they had God's revelation, and, and they didn't do anything with it because they needed a circumcision of the heart, a new heart. They failed. And what are they failing? Well, in the next verses then, he's going to show how they failed in the two commandments, the two greatest commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with everything, with your whole being. And secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. They did not give every ounce of their being to their rescuing king and loving their fellow man. And these verses here in verses 9 through 12 
and then 13 through uh, uh, 18 will show that, that they did not love God with their full pursuit. And so they wonder, are the promises of God to Israel nullified? And Paul's going to circle back to that in Romans 9 through 11. He's going to put that on pause for a little bit now. And so let's look at the next verses here. Now he says, in verses 9 through 12, here's how you failed uh, in the very first, the greatest commandment. You did not love God with full pursuit. So he's going to say in verse 9, Paul puts himself in this. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Um, no, no wise. Not at all. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And so what Paul will do now is take the oracles of God that God gave to Israel, and he's going to throw a net into the Old Testament. And he's going to drag this net through the Old Testament. He's going to use mostly the Psalms and then a quotation from Isaiah to show, here from your very oracles of God that God gave you, you're guilty. And he shows through the Psalms this consistent truth that evil is ruling in our hearts. Now, think about what he said in verse 9 and 10. As an Israelite, for Paul to equate Jews and Gentiles in his day to judgment and being in sin will be like us equating, you know, people who attend our churches um, and, 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 and atheists today. Um, Paul's saying, without a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the problem here. And he needed them to, to understand that sin is universal. And there is, a, there is a true and great leveler of humanity here. Jesus did this over and over, didn't he, in the Gospels? People would point to someone and say, look at that sinner. What would Jesus do? They'd flip it around and say, yeah, look at those sinners, right? That we all stand on the same level before God. Here's the problem here. Romans 3, 9 through 20 now is going to show us that our big issue is that we haven't given God the power of attorney over our whole life. Instead, we try to get what we want out of God because of our twisted hearts. You're going to see in these verses that there's some effects that sin has. It affects our, our legal standing, certainly. No one's righteous before God in the law. It also affects our minds. There's no one who understands. There's a corruption here, a blindness, a denial. It affects our motives. No one seeks God. We're running away from Him. Even in religion, we're just trying to get what we can out of God instead of a heart surrendered to Him, apart from Christ. Uh, our wills, we've all turned away. We choose our own paths. You think of Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. Our tongues, our Paul says in verse 13, our throats are open graves, we're deceitful, we're, we're poisonous, bitter, we curse in what we say. And he gives an image of a grave with rotting bodies in it. The words that come out of our mouth, sinful words, are signs of decay. Our relationships, swift to shed blood, ruin, uh, destruction, and misery, mark their ways, the way of peace they don't know. We're after each other's blood. All really encouraging, right? And of course, our relationship with God, there's no fear of God before our eyes. 
So he starts off in verse 11 and 12. None righteous, no, not one. None who understands, none who seek after God. They're on the side, they're on their own way, they're unprofitable. None who does good, no, not one. Well, remember what Paul's trying to do here. He said in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation. But why do I need salvation? Verse 18, because you're under the wrath of God. Why am I under the wrath of God? And this is this part here, the gospel presentation of the bad news. And Paul needs people to understand so they understand why they need the good news. You say, I'm not that bad a person. Imagine three people trying to swim from Hawaii to Japan. One guy can't swim at all, so he sinks as soon as he gets out of his depth. Drowned. Next guy's a weak swimmer. He flounders for about 60 feet before drowning. And he drowns. The third's a championship swimmer, and he swims strongly for a long time. But after 30 miles, he's struggling. After 40, he's sinking. And after 50 miles, he drowns. Which one of those is more drowned than the others? It doesn't matter all which one swam further. None were anywhere near Japan, and each one ends up as dead as the others. In the same way, we can trust in our own morality or, or engage in, in paths apart from God. And the problem is we need a righteous heart. So he talks about the relationship with God in the first few verses here in 3, 9 through 12. And then he's going to talk about our relationship to our neighbor. Because God's intent was always to love our neighbor by seeking their good. It's a flowing out of that first commandment. And he says in verse 13, Their throat is an open sepulcher. Their tongues they have used to see. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their throat's an open tomb. You ever find we can demonize people who oppose us? There's a rottenness. There's a death. With our tongues, they practice deceit. We can do that with half-truths. We can make ourselves look better than we are so that other people look worse. The poison of asp is under their lips. Our, our words are like the, the venom of a serpent. They destroy. Mouths full of cursing and bitterness. Thankless hearts. Have you stopped and thanked the Lord for things this week? Unforgiving spirits. You have a trust and a gratitude in a good God. Do you know how you find out what Paul's saying is true experientially? Find out what your heart does when you aren't recognized for something that you think you should be recognized for. Find out what your heart does when somebody speaks to you very shortly. And discounts you. Find out what your heart does when somebody says something that hurts you. In verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. And when you find that to be true, what you also find is you want to get back. You want a vengeance. You want to pile on. People, for some reason, seem that they can be free to do this on social media today, right, without consequence. There is no demonstration of mercy, right, but we want vengeance. And 
you try to get other people upset and angry is the same thing as you are and destroy people. That's the venom of the human heart, isn't it? And he says in 16, destruction and misery are in their ways. Can we all be honest this morning? Most people who have ever lived have thought about killing someone. Have thought about someone being removed from their life. Let me just encourage you as Christians here as we look in this peeling away of the human heart here. When you engage in this, with someone who differs with you, you need to stop and ask yourself whether you're doing so because you're genuinely interested in communicating and connecting with a fellow human. Or are you just trying to score points? Do you ever find yourself trying to one-up the good deeds of someone else to make yourself look good? Or respect that you're craving? All these things are coming out of this kind of heart here. The way of peace, verse 17, have they not known? The way of peace means walking in agreement with what, who God is and what he's done for us. And therefore, then with each other. All these things are violations of the second commandment. And friends, our hearts veer this way. Apart from the Lord, our hearts veer this way every time. Summary statement of verse 18. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And then he says this in verse 19 and 20 to set up the good news for next week here. Now we know. We know. You who receive the oracles of God, you know this, that what things over the law says, it says to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, silenced, and all the world may become guilty before God. Here's what he's saying. The law of God does not declare us righteous. Probably as you've heard these things, you might say, well, I don't do that. And then you heard some things like, whoa, I do that. It's like an MRI. The word of God's like an MRI, right? It shows what's in the inside. Sweeps out the corners. Because here's the deal. Without the righteousness that comes apart from the law, he's going to say in verses 20 to 31, we tend to mark ourselves out as superior to others in this world. Or we look for things that give us meaning to our existence that aren't supposed to. Identities or loyalties or belongings or family heritage, etc. Here, And the result is this, though. We have a collective identity together. All the world does as this is sinners guilty before God that destroys our pride and other things, our human notions of work. All these things that we try to attach our lives to do nothing to fix the heart issue. And they actually contribute to the subtle ways that pride can twist us deeper into our sin issue. And Paul says we're silenced. We're silenced. Verse 20, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Here's what I want you to understand here. Christianity does not say that man is pathetic. Man is made in the image of God. 
Man's a marvelous creation of God. But man is a rebel against God. And as such, he deserves God's wrath. Man is not pathetic. Man is a rebel. And it's not as if men were hopelessly caught in a net here that, um, uh, that, that, that somebody else threw at them here. They made this net. They're there by their choice. They're caught in this net. There's a responsibility here, Paul says. Friends, Jesus is the world's true King Savior. And what he's going to say in verses 21 through 30 is, now let me do this. Let me do this. This is the only way. See, the world's ruled by all kinds of stories, right? Individuals and the story that I'm the center of the universe. Consumerism, the, the story that I'm what I own. My house, my car, my clothes, my possessions here. That defines me. The story that we can't know what is universally good, moral relativism. Scientific naturalism, the story that all that matters is matter. New Age, the story that we're gods. No. Tribalism you see today, the story that all that matters is what my crowd's thinking is. Or salvation by therapy, the story that I can achieve my full human potential through inner exploration. The Bible says this, repent as a rebel against God. Turn and trust the good news of King Jesus. He's the bearer of good news for our hearts. And the only way we can participate in Christ's victory over evil is this, by doing it his way. When we do it our way, we're going to be back into the rule of sin and death. The only way of victory is through the cross. And we're faced with so many pressures to assume so many lifestyles and ways of thinking. And the messages all have this at their core. Your lifestyle will be limitless if you do this, if you think this way. And it's a lie. All of it's a lie. None of these things can give life. The sign of sin and death is across them all. But there's news today. I'm among you as a former prisoner bringing news of impending release. And many of you in this room, I trust all of you, are former prisoners to this bondage of the tiger. first man, Adam, was strong. See that in Romans 5. The second man, Christ, is stronger still. There it is, Jesus. He died with us and instead of us and for us. But that same God raised Jesus from the dead. And that resurrection unleashes the power of the stronger man to those who receive Jesus. That stronger man brings victory through his death and resurrection. Jesus' royal birth secured his claim to the eternal throne that God made a covenant with David about. His miracles on this earth pointed to the presence of the fact that he was the king and the person of the Messiah. His teaching invited those who would listen to come into his kingdom. And he laid down the demands. And on that day at Calvary, his sacrificial death, atoned for the sins of those who would otherwise be condemned. 
they do not believe when he returns. And his resurrection establishes him as the son who God appointed judge and Lord over the world in his coming kingdom. And so passages like this today in Romans chapter 3 is the judge of all the earth summoning you to turn and trust the good news of King Jesus. To declare him, confess him as Messiah King. And if you haven't yet, be baptized in his name. It's a declaration of that. So this scripture here tells us, well, you obey God's command of mercy at this time. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if he is not standing in your place, if these paths that we talked about, the false paths, the lies, the ones that you're following, and you haven't turned to the Lord, Scripture says this, that we're to turn before it's too late and trust him and give your surrender, give your allegiance here to the risen king. Your Jesus' work. And then I'm probably speaking to a room just about all full of believers here this morning. Believers, as we went through the word here, when you came to Christ, did you know you were pledging your allegiance to him? Above all things. We work through sewage here that's in our hearts that can tend to pop up. Are there things that the Spirit is calling you to lay aside and surrender? The fruit of the goodness of Christ at work in your life. Unbelievers, turn and trust God's provision. We need more scripture on how the Bible shows us how to do that. I'd love to have a conversation with you at the end. Believers, walk the path through the Holy Spirit, the grace of God that God's called you to.